Good morning. Welcome to Turkress Epistemology. My name is Travis Shaddix. Thank you for coming this morning. It is a very miserable, wet and windy and rainy day here in Lexington, Kentucky. It is Tuesday, February 27, 2024. Anybody in eastern Kentucky, northern Virginia, southern West Virginia, southern Pennsylvania, you guys are about to get hammered. If you guys are listening to this live, the uh, front just passed through Lexington, and it was uh, raining sideways. I bet it probably rained easily a half an inch, maybe an inch, in about three hours. So, it is a flood out there today. And uh, <clears throat> hopefully the worst of it is past here, but you guys are probably going to get hit if you're in those areas I mentioned. If this is your first time here, this is Turfgrass Epistemology. We are exploring how we know, what we know about turfgrass science. Oftentimes we are faced with decisions. You know, how do we know? I mean, should I use this? Should I use that? Is there any validity to you know, applying carbon or airifying your soil or applying when should you apply fertilizer in the spring or the fall and what type of fertilizer and all these things. You're faced with these decisions as business owners and superintendents and sport turf managers, sod producers. And I'm here to explore the literature and hopefully help explain how we know what we know. Welcome. Vahid, Navi, welcome. Gray, Gray Andrew, Lush, Rich the Long Guy, Turf Nerd, Mitch, Louis, Louis Carta, Louis Carta, I'm not sure how you... Pronounce your first name Lewis or Louie, I'm not sure. You're in South Carolina. Well, you might, if you're in northern South Carolina, you might get a little bit of this front that's headed your way, Lewis. And uh, it wasn't fun. <laughs> I've developed a, sense, a little bit of anxiety with storms in the last year. Never had any problems before. And about, well, this time last year, it was Jan I think it was either January or February of last year, I was sitting. I was standing with my son looking out the, we were redoing our deck and it was, there was some construction going on and I was looking out the window of our spare bedroom and there was a really, really bad windstorm coming through and it never, never bothered me at all. And I was sitting, standing with him looking out the window and I said, you know what, maybe we should maybe go to the basement or just back away in the middle of the house. And right when I said that, I heard, I felt and heard the ground shaking like it, it sounded like uh, i don't know almost like a tractor or something driving across my lawn my, my side of my house and a massive catalpa tree fell over and nicked my house and crushed part of my deck probably a 70 or 80 year old tree it was a huge tree and that scared me a little bit and then two or three months later the deck was almost finished and about a 50 or 60 year old black cherry tree fell in another windstorm and crushed a lot of things. And since then I've developed a bit of an anxiety <laughs> with storms in Lexington, Kentucky. It's a little bit, a little bit new to me. I've never experienced that. So it is what it is. Um, today we have a short little video about some stabilized nitrogen. And then we have an article. It's going to be pretty short today. And then tomorrow is a normal day. We'll do a morning show tomorrow at 10 and then an evening show tomorrow at 9 p.m. And then Thursday is a very rare afternoon Thursday episode. So look forward to that. And that has to do with foliar applied nitrogen uptake timings and quantities, percentages of what's taken up into the plant through foliar applications. So look forward to that. Ignacio Heiss, I'm not sure how you say that, Elevated Lawnscapes. And there's a lot of people here today. Half-Life, Lawn, Connecticut, Cubonican. Good morning to everybody. Let's get started. So um, as you all know, if you've been watching the channel, I have been trying to keep this to an hour, and we've been going over uh, nitrogen sources. 
In the last week or two, we've been going over foliar applications or liquid applications of nitrogen to turf grass. And primarily, we've been looking at the effect of nitrogen stabilizers and whether or not it actually is beneficial in terms of turf quality or growth or some interesting metric. And we've basically found that the when it comes to uh, volatilization, uh, it's very, they're effective. Denitrification, it's you know questionable. When it comes to the turf grass response and value to it, to you as a turf manager, whether you're in sports fields or golf or lawn care, saw production, we just haven't consistently seen any evidence to support the use of these nitrogen stabilized products in turf grass management. In terms of some pick some metric you're interested in, you know, growth of your football field grass, you know, or, or increasing quality of your your tea boxes or whatever, whatever you want to look at, it just we just haven't really seen hardly any evidence at all. And, in, and even if we do see some, it's very marginal in terms of you know having confidence in recommending these products in turf grass management. But that doesn't stop manufacturers and, and distributors from marketing and selling them. So today we have a video about one such product, and I'm not just uh, talking about this specific product, but what I want to use this video for is is an over a sort of an umbrella um, concept about claims because I get a lot of emails now about have you heard have you looked at this product have you what about that product and is there any evidence for that product and so forth and I just want to use this now that we've have some background information about nitrogen stabilizers in this case it's it's a product that just contains DCD which is the nitrification inhibitor intended to reduce ammonium conversion to nitrate and and retain ammonium in the soil and result in some turf quality benefit, which we haven't seen really much at all in the literature. Um, but when it comes to these nitrogen stabilized products, there are a lot of a lot of claims and a lot of questions, and the people I, people ask me questions, and and it's not our responsibility as consumers to refute anything. Or to go find evidence to support anything. Now, if if you want to make an, ev an evidence-based decision, by all means, go and pursue the evidence. If you want to pursue that, and that's what I'm here for, to provide some information. But just keep in mind as a consumer, it's upon the manufacturer and the marketing. It, the burden of proof is on them to provide sufficient evidence to convince us to use it. And the reason that's important is because if you don't have that mindset, you're going to run around all over creation, buying everything, trying everything because you think it might work. And that's a very expensive approach to turf management. I mean, the chances are if you take that approach, you'll eventually find something that works, you know, just by happenstance, just by sheer luck, you'll eventually stumble across something that might be beneficial to you. But in the process, you're spending a lot of money and a lot of time buying products because you're convinced from the marketing material that it would be useful to you. It's not our responsibility to do that. And it's not my responsibility to refute every claim or to provide evidence to support every claim or whatever the case is. It's their responsibility. It's, you know, the distributor's responsibility. And if they don't provide that, then just move on. <laughs> Find something else. You know, you keep using what you're using. Sulfur coat or urea or ammonium sulfate or whatever. Okay, it's a very exhaustive approach to constantly be, you know, looking to find proof to support something well it's their responsibility if they don't provide it then move on you know go about your business keep making money keep mowing the fairways keep keep doing your job you know um there's scientists who explore these questions for sure i explore these questions for sure it's part of my job but um as a consumer i just don't think that it's wise to take that approach it's better just to stay neutral on something until there's evidence to support one way or the other and that evidence you know is not on marketing sheets. <laughs> I'm just being frank. It's not on commercials. <laughs> I've rarely seen any anything convincing on a commercial or a marketing sheet that is would would convince me to oh, I should buy this, you know, I should use this. So just keep that in mind. You don't have to be knowledgeable. I guess the topic, the point is, you don't have to be an encyclopedia of turfgrass nitrogen dynamics in order to make wise decisions. You just have to have some basic critical thinking skills and say, well, 
nothing you've shown me is convincing because it's not evidence published in a literature or it's not conducted by a third party non-biased source or whatever. It's just some data on a marketing sheet and anybody can put anything on a data sheet on a marketing flyer and that's it. And that, but it, that shouldn't uh, be too convincing, I hope. Okay, let's get good. Let's get to it. So let's see if I can get this up. Okay. And so this video comes from the Site One Landscape Supply. It's a video entitled Enhance Fertilizer Uptake and Prolong Greening with Lesco NOS and NOS Plus. It's only two minutes long, two minutes and 30 seconds long. A lot of claims in here. Uh, it just so happens in this particular example, we, I've provided ample evidence to refute nearly every claim in this video. Um, but keep in mind, you don't have to, you don't have to rely upon me or the evidence in the video. Notice how many claims are made and compare that with how much evidence is provided to support those claims. That's the point of the video. Okay, let's go. You know that to grow, you need the trust of the people you serve. But you also know that to earn it, you need to provide agronomic solutions that will deliver superior results and lead to a sterling reputation. Lesco NOS and NOS Plus, available exclusively at Site One Landscape Supply, are enhanced efficiency fertilizers designed to improve greening longevity while getting the most out of every application. Whether it's residential lawns, large commercial settings, or golf courses. NOS, or Nitrogen Optimization System, delivers stabilized nitrogen to the soil through spread or spray application. This makes nutrients more available for uptake compared to fertilizers with unstabilized urea-based nitrogen. NOS Plus takes performance a step higher with the addition of an industry-first dual mode of action release. An advanced polymer coating releases stabilized nitrogen predictably over time, while a fully infused, NOS-stabilized urea reduces nitrogen loss as it's released. This technology increases nitrogen use longevity and efficiencies, extends the feeding timeline, prolongs greening, and improves retention in the soil, thus enhancing plant availability. Here's how the science behind both NOS and NOS Plus works. DCD is a water-soluble nitrification inhibitor that's fully infused into the granule while in the molten phase. Yeah, so just, just so we're clear here is that DCD is an evidence-based uh, element or component that will influence nitrification. Um, but keep in mind, I'm not just interested in reducing nitrification. I'm interested in the turf quality. Notice how there hasn't been any evidence yet to provide, to support anything. They're just making claims. The homogeneous infusion of DCD inhibits the nitrogen conversion in the soil from ammonium to nitrate by bonding the positively charged ammonium compound to negatively charged soil. NOS keeps the nitrogen in the ammonium state longer, meaning nutrients are released at a rate that matches the nitrogen needs of turf and promotes both root and shoot growth. Yeah, so I'm going to show a little bit of information on this in an upcoming episode where um, I'm trying to think of it might actually be next month, but they're, they're basically saying it, it keeps nitrogen and ammonium stage longer and blah, blah, blah. And we've shown some evidence to say that indicate that doesn't really happen. I'm going to show a paper that indicates that it actually will happen. There, there is some evidence to support that for sure. Um, but it is secondary to my interest. My interests are the turf. And the idea is, well, if it does this, then it's going to enhance the turf. Well, not necessarily. And we haven't really seen a whole lot of information or evidence to support that. Let's keep going. Compared to fertilizer blends with standard urea, only NOS effectively reduces the potential for nitrogen to be lost through leaching or volatilization. Well, if, if, it, if it, I thought this product only contained DCD. I looked up the label and maybe I misread the label, but I only saw DCD on the, on the label. So maybe I'm looking at the wrong label, but if it contains <clears throat> only DCD, then it won't have anything to do with urease volatilization, right? It's only going to influence the nitrification inhib inhibition. So maybe I misread the label. It has to contain two components to do to reduce volatilization and to reduce nitrification. If it just contains DCD, it won't do that. It will only do the, the latter. So. I thought it just contained one, but maybe I'm wrong. Let's keep going. 
By reducing the loss, you can ensure every dollar invested in nutrition is maximized to achieve longer-lasting performance. And see, that's where I, I take issue with some of these marketing sheets because I don't have to provide any information or evidence to, to refute any of this at all. None. I happen to have evidence to refute all this, okay, as many, many other authors do as well. But when they start talking about investment, ma maximize your investment, maximize longevity performance, that's where science, that's where I can step in and say, okay, we have clear evidence that that doesn't happen. It, it's, it's actually the exact opposite. Unless the price is exactly the same price as urea. In most cases, the inclusion of these uh, nitrification inhibitors increase the price of uh, the product being urea substantially, you know, 50% to 100% more expensive than straight urea. But when you start talking about investment, no, it is, you're not getting a return. What's the ROI? Return on investment. You're not getting a return on your investment when you're spending more money and getting, getting nothing back in return. You know, when I say nothing, that's an extreme, but you're not getting hardly anything in terms of turf response back in return for the money you spend on it. You might get some incidental um, retention of ammonium. You might get some reduction in volatilization if you have something like MBBT in there. That may, that may occur and likely will occur if those conditions exist to favor those transformations. Those products will reduce that transformation. But I don't care really about that so much. Environmentally, I do. But when it comes to the turf grass, I don't really care about that. What I want to know is what's going to happen to the turf, longevity, color, quality, growth, something that I'm interested in. And time after time after time, we do not see that in the literature. We don't see any change uh, uh, compared to urea. And even in cases where you might pull something out of the literature and say, oh, Travis, you're wrong. Here's an increase from urea. Okay, what was the increase from urea? Does it counter off, offset the expense, the investment? Does the additional expense to buy these products give me something in return for that investment? And what they're saying is it does. And what I'm saying is, I haven't seen any evidence to support it. And in fact, I've seen evidence to refute it. So please don't be, um, don't fall into the trap of saying, I got to find evidence. I got to do this. They're not providing any evidence. They're just saying stuff. Okay. Enhance nutrient efficiency, promote greening longevity, further environmental stewardship, and realize a better return on investment. Basically, none of that is supported by evidence. Let's back up. Let's back up to these last four claims. Okay, let's, let's start again on these last four claims. Longer lasting performance. Enhance nutrient efficiency. So enhance nutrient efficiency. There's many different ways to measure that, okay? <clears throat> Generally speaking, if you're applying a pound of nitrogen, and let's say 50% gets taken up to the plant, it would be 50% efficient. Rough numbers, so just bear with me. Okay, that's the basic concept. And what they're saying is using a product like this would increase the percentage of nitrogen that gets taken up to the plant occasionally, very, very rarely, but occasionally you might be able to find something in the literature that supports that. The majority of the time you won't find any difference between this and urea. So that's not supported, at least not convincing to me. Promote greening longevity. I've actually measured this, as you know, from the, from the study, um, the nitrogen cost study where I measured the longevity of response, turf grass response to these products. Other authors have also measured turf grass response, longevity, and solve, you know, whether it's weeks or months in longevity from urea, does it change and does it increase when you're including a product like DCD? And we've seen essentially zero evidence. So if, if you find one study that says there was some additional longevity, I'll show you 10 that didn't show any difference between urea and, and DCD. Okay. Further environmental stewardship. So this particular claim is potentially valid. We haven't really shown, I haven't gone into the environmental stewardship part of this, but there is, there, there is a little bit there, okay? I wouldn't say there's a whole lot there in terms of leaching. I know they want to talk about leaching. I wouldn't say there's a whole lot there in terms of reducing nitrogen leaching because you're including a product like DCD. It's a little bit there, but if you want to argue that it reduces denitrification and denitrification can actually be the gaseous loss of nitrogen through denitrification can be harmful to the environment, then that's possible that that there's some evidence to support that. So if that's what, you know, floats your boat, then there may be something there, even though still they're not showing any evidence to support it. 
and realize a better return on investment. And there's absolutely strong evidence to refute that. But even if you don't know anything, that's it, that's the end of the video. Even if you don't know anything about any of this product at all, you, you don't need to know anything about the product at all. They're just making claims. And what, what'll happen more, than, more frequently than not is they'll have, because they realize that too, we're just making wild assertions. They'll say, well, let's go do a study with ABC State University and we'll do something for five months or six months or a year or whatever the case is. And they'll find something and then they'll put like graphs on a flyer and say, look at the, look at the response of this product compared to the competitor's product or whatever. Don't be fooled by that either. Okay. Th those are intentionally selected, cherry-picked from a set of data that may, they may have done 10 studies and found one that worked, and they will, they'll show that one. Or they may have used one study with 10 treatments and only two worked, and they'll pull those two out and, and ignore the other eight, even though the other eight may have colluded urea and may have been exactly the same as the product they, they included. It happens all the time. Okay, even from the companies that you ha you think are very well established, have a good good uh, reputation in the industry. Oh no, they wouldn't do that. Yes, they would. Okay, <laughs> they definitely would do it. They are doing it. So don't be fooled by marketing sheets that have data on them, unless at the data it says something like you know uh, Snyder, nineteen eighty four, you know crop science or whatever. Unless they cite you know a refereed paper or or some sort of you know published work that's a little different if you're going to do that I'm, I'm i don't know if i've ever even seen that but if they did that then i could actually go look that up i could look that paper up and look it up and go okay well, what did they find here and read it and find out for myself whether or not it's convincing information okay so i just wanted to use that as an example of a bunch of claims some of them the, the environmental thing may or may not be true to some degree most of them are refuted by evidence but even, like i said even if you don't know anything about it please guard yourself by using critical thinking skills and go, well, that's just in one ear and out the other. And what I want to know is what's actually happened. How do I know? How do I find that out? And it's usually through the, the scientific literature or your land-grant institution that can help you find the most, you know, the best management practice for these various nitrogen sources and turf management practices, okay? And just so we're aware, just so we're 100% on the same page, is that the link to all the land-grant institutions in the United States and the turf programs at those universities is in the description of this, of this video. Okay, it's through, it's through the United States Department of Agriculture. You can go down there, open up the PDF, and click on the links, and it'll take you. It, it, they're, they're organized by state, and it'll take you to your state's turf program, and you can start the pursuit of uh, you know, knowledge that way. If you can, if, let's say you go to, well, let's say you go to Kentucky because there is no faculty at Kentucky anymore. And you say, well, I want to know what's going on with DCD on urea in Kentucky. Well, there's not really anybody there that's going to do that. But they'll, hopefully they'll tell you that. There's no faculty here. We can't help you. And then, but then they'll direct you to say Tennessee or Purdue nearby or Ohio State, nearby universities who do have a substantial faculty base and they can help you. Okay. And you can just pursue it that way. That's all I got on uh, on the video. So I will shut that down, and I will read a little bit of chat and get started on the 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 article for today. So Ignacio Pais, you say, what about, sorry, my nose is itching today. What about warm season studies? Yeah, the majority of my work that I did is on warm season grasses. And I've been going over mostly cool season grasses because although Florida and Southern California, Southern Texas, is Southern Louisiana and these, these places are dominated by warm season grasses. Large amount of turf grasses in Southern Texas and Southern Florida. That is warm season. A huge amount of turf grasses in cool season. And so I've been going over cool season grasses. But almost all of my work, I mean nearly all of it, I, maybe there's some that was on cool season grasses, but nearly all of it is on warm season grasses. And so I'm more of a warm season grass specialist than a cool season grass. And I'm happy to go over those whenever I get to them. 
So we'll be going over warm season grasses. Ignacio also asks, any correlation between cool and warm season nutrient uptake? Well, I don't know what you mean by correlation. I mean, when you say correlation to me, is there, is there, a, is there a relationship between the amount that's taken up from cool season and the relationship between that taken up in warm season? I mean, they're going to differ on seasons. And they're going to differ on quantities for sure. So, for example, cool season grasses are going to have a much larger percentage of nitrogen than, than warm season grasses. Cool season grasses are going to take up more nitrogen in the spring and the fall than warm season grasses, particularly in the fall when warm season grasses are shutting down. So, I mean, I wouldn't say there's a correlation <clears throat> in the time of year, and I wouldn't say there's really a correlation in the quantity, but certainly there's a relationship between, you know, how they're taken up and the, you know, the, the relative amounts of phosphorus and potassium that they may need, but the quantities are going to differ and the time of year is going to differ for sure. So Andrew Burr says, yeah, you, you want to see warm season grass. So, okay, I'll go do some warm season grasses. I've been doing a lot of cool seasons, so it's not a problem doing warm season grasses. I probably, I don't know, I probably have 10 or 15 papers just myself, I think, that have warm season grasses in them. So, Turf nerd lawn care. <laughs> this is killing me. I have spent more than $150,000 in enhanced efficiency fertilizer over the years. I could have done a lot of of other beneficial things for my clients with that money. That is a very real situation, turf nerd lawn care. I, I empathize with you. I, I, I do. It's, it's not a good feeling whenever you've, at the time, I don't know, you've been doing it for however many years, you may have been convinced, well, assuming you were convinced that you were doing the right thing, you were following best management practices, it sounded convincing, and uh, and you felt confident about your the process. Um, unfortunately, a lot of this research, like what I've been going, this research has been going on since seventies, eighties, sixties, sometimes going on going on for thirty, forty, fifty years on these products. And unfortunately, a lot of it is behind paywalls. So you you don't have wide open access to all this information. Step one and step two make it even worse is. Oftentimes, the language in this literature is written, well, it's always written in SI units. SI units is a French acronym for like in, in international scientific units, but it's not, doesn't stand for that. But SI is a, S is a French word, I think. It means, you know, scientific language. And oftentimes, it's not very easy for just the average person to understand, unfortunately. So that's a that's an unfortunate side effect of our research. We we publish we publish it in a location oftentimes that is not accessible to the general public, and we publish it in a way that is not easily understood by the general public. I understand there are some open access journals and there's some practitioners' journals and so forth that that differ. They try to they try to fill that void, um, but that's a very real very real problem. Turf node, and I, I really I'm really sorry. I really am. It's it's not. It's not intentional. We don't do it on purpose, but it just—it's the reality that we're in. And more and more articles are becoming open access. More and more authors are able to pay an extra fee to have their journal article be open access, and it's more open and available. But it's still written in a language that's not not often easy for an average person to understand. So, you know, I guess that's where this channel sort of fits that niche. Is that you know I try. I mean, oftentimes I fail, but I try to take those that information and get it out to the general public in a way that you can implement it and use it and at the core of it that's the objective of the channel really turfgrass epistemology i recognize that that's a problem you know what we do and not a lot of people have have access to this information and so i'm trying my best here and and not you know other people do as well but you know it's uh it's an unfortunate reality. I I'm really sorry. Yeah, Bert says SI units are mostly a problem in America. You know, hey, I, you know, I'm an American, <laughs> born and raised Oklahoma bred, right? So I'm all for America. But the units we use are completely illogical. I'm just being honest, okay? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. 
When it comes to SI units, almost a lot of things are based off of water. So like a cubic centimeter is based upon however much volume of water can fit in a cubic centimeter, and that's like milliliters, and that's how you convert from volumes to area to, you know, to mass and all these things. Everything is very logical. But in, in English units, it's not. And that, that even goes for dentistry. In the, Eng, in, in the United States, how to, how to uh, identify teeth makes no, no sense whatsoever. <laughs> There's no, they identify teeth by the number. The international system, when my, my wife explained it to me, I'm like, oh, that makes total sense. Why wouldn't we do that? <laughs> and she's like, I don't know. You guys are crazy. So I'm with you on that one, Hofgard or Bert. You know, it, it's a little bit... Um, <laughs> it's a little bit strange how we do things here. I don't know, but it is what it is. Uh, so okay, let's get started. I don't want to be here forever today. Today's article is entitled "Response of Three Kentucky Bluegrass Cultivars to Sprayable Nitrogen Fertilizer Programs." It is by Moore Christians and Agnew, and it was published in. Crop Science in 1996. So here's another article you're not going to have access to, unfortunately. But again, you know, we're, we're doing our best here to, to get the word out. So I'm doing my best here. So this, just real briefly, this article is going to have a couple different, two, two or three different varieties of Kentucky bluegrass. And they, and they selected them based upon their perceived um, maintenance needs. And then they're going to have two or three, I think four nitrogen sources and then application dates. So this article fits for today in terms of uh, soluble nitrogen applications. They're going to have two or three different soluble nitrogen forms, but it also fits for fall or spring or summer nitrogen applications as well, just so we're on all together here. Let me get my pen here. Okay. Applications of sprayable fertilizers became popular in the 1970s and 80s because of their adaptability to tank mix applications. Urea and ureaform were the two basic fertilizers used in the industry. In the 1980s, several new forms of sprayable nitrogen were introduced. A suspension containing methylene, oh, I'm sorry, a suspension containing ethylene urea, which is fluff. Oops, I think my right, I think the right, uh, where am I at here? Draw. This fluff we've gone over before. And, um, let me, I'm sorry, I'm getting things all messed up here. Let me fix all this here. Okay, this fluff here we've gone over before. And so you can go back in the, in the channel and, and read a little bit more about that particular product. The, and then there's a solution containing methylol, methylol urea called formalene. That's a little bit more like a Coron product. It's a, it's completely soluble. Um, and these these were looked at in this study. These materials are formed by reacting urea with formaldehyde. Methylene urea, which is the fluff, contains 3.6% water and soluble nitrogen, which gives the material a slow release characteristic. Methylene urea nitrogen release is dependent upon microbial action in the soil. The methylol urea, the formalene, contains no water and soluble nitrogen, but has a lower salt index than urea and thus a lower burn potential. And we've looked at that before. There is a little bit of value there in terms of reducing the burn potential. But what they're explaining, if you're unfamiliar with these methylene ureas, it's reacted, it's not coated. So they take urea, they react it, and they, they I think they react it with carbon dioxide, if I'm not, not mistaken. And it forms into urea bonded with some carbon and methyl groups on there. And the more and more carbons that are added, the longer they, they cook it, basically, and the, the higher temperatures they cook it at, they can add more and more carbons onto that urea. And the more and more carbons that are added, you can think of it as the slower release it is. But when you only add a few on there, it still remains as a solution. It doesn't form into a solid yet. And so some of these liquids are, use that knowledge to just have a couple of them on there, a couple carbons on there. It still remains as a solution, but yet it greatly lowers the burn potential. Okay, so that's what we're dealing with here on these two products. Methyl, oh, I already did that. Okay, urea form, which is produced as a granular product or as a finely ground powder to be sprayed as a suspension, and that's the powder blue. This is still around the day, this 3800 powder blue. This is actually an extremely small, very fine, like talcum powder consistency 
but it's a solid. It doesn't dissolve in the solution in the water. It actually remains as a, as a suspension in your spray tank. It contains 27% water and soluble nitrogen and has been one of the most widely used long-chain methylene ureas for the past 25 years. And this was, like I said, this was in 1996. And it, I don't know how common it's used today, but it's still around today. The timing of nitrogen applications is an important consideration in the development of fertility programs for Kentucky bluegrass. The standard practice has been to apply a spring, a summer, and a fall application from Lettabower and Scogley in 1973. Now, we went over that paper. You can go back in the channel and look that paper up. As early as the, the mid-1930s, studies were being conducted on the effects of late fall fertilization of Kentucky bluegrass, Carolyn Wellington. We also went over that paper in 1939. You can go back and look the Carolyn Wellington paper up in the channel somewhere. Studies during the last 30 years have indicated there are agronomic benefits of fall and late fall fertilization. The Hansen and Juska we went over, the Warner 1988 we went over, and the Wilkinson and Duff. All these papers we went over. So all you got to do is go, if you want more information, all you got to do is go back in the channel and I guess search Carol and the, the link or the, the citations in the description. And it'll probably bring up that video when I went over those papers. Late, uh, okay. Previous studies have compared nitrogen sources, timing, and rates to determine their effects on quality growth and development of Kentucky bluegrass. Agnew and Christians, here's the Carolyn Wellington, Hanson, and all these, Landshut and Waddington, Spangleberg we've gone over. Well, yeah, we've gone over all these papers except for this 1993 Agnew and Christians paper, I think. So feel free to go back and look them up. But no studies have investigated variations in response of high and low maintenance cultivars to these variables. Our objective was to investigate the response of Majestic Vantage and Park Kentucky Bluegrass to urea, urea form, methylene urea, and methyl urea applied as liquid sprays in heavy spring, balanced, and late fall nitrogen programs. So it's pretty straightforward. That's their objective. They're going to look at three different, a couple different cultivars, a couple different nitrogen sources, and they're going to apply them at different times of the year and see what happens. The Majestic Vantage and Park Kentucky Bluegrasses were seeded in a randomized complete block design with three replications at the Iowa State University Horticultural Research Station near Ames, Iowa in, 19, in the fall of 1984. Each cultivar was selected for its maintenance requirements based on long-term observations at the Iowa State University Turfgrass Research Center. Majestic, you have to remember this, so if you're listening and you're just kind of spaced out a little bit, you're going to have to remember this or else you're going to get lost. Majestic has a high maintenance requirement. Vantage and Park have medium and low maintenance requirements, respectively. So when I talk about Majestic, we're going to talk about high maintenance. Vantage is, is medium maintenance, and the Park is a very low maintenance Kentucky bluegrass from their research on the, at the Iowa State uh, Research Center over the years. Okay, the 1.5 by, by 3 meters subplots were factorial arranged with four nitrogen sources and three application programs. Each subplot received a total of, now here's this unit R. So 100 square meters is, a, is an R. And one kilogram per R, per R is two pounds of nitrogen per thousand. So two kilograms per R is four pounds of nitrogen per thousand. After like multiple screw ups. And if you went back in the channel, if you were, if you were watching the channel, I don't know, four months ago or whenever it was, November when I started, I never really used R. It's very uncommon to have a unit as R. A-R-E. And so I think I screwed that thing up like four or five times. <laughs> and I, th I think now, hopefully, I've got it right. Okay, so they applied four pounds of nitrogen per thousand square feet for the, or for the season from either urea, urea form, methylene urea, or methylol urea applied in a heavy spring, balanced, or late fall program beginning in the spring of 1985. So they seed it in 1984. Let's see here. They... Yeah, in 1984 in the fall, and then they started the study in the spring. The heavy spring program included nitrogen applications. I'm gonna I, I might be wrong on this conversion. I'm doing this in my head here, okay? So bear with me. They're all in R units, which throws me off. Um, but I'm going to try my best. They, they, the nitrogen applications were a half a pound of N per thousand. And then I'm going I'm to I'm say this was a pound and a half. This would be like a pound and a half a pound, um, pounds of N per thousand. And then a pound per thousand, I think, is what this is here. So they split up the heavy spring program to where a majority of it went out in April. So the, the half a pound went out in 
April and then another pound and a half went out in May and then they waited until August and September and put out a pound in August and a pound in September. So they loaded it up in the spring and then had August and September later. The balance program included a pound of in per thousand in each of the months. So April, May, August, and September. So it was just evenly distributed throughout the, the spring and summer and then in the early fall, as opposed to loading up more in the spring. And then the fall application program, as you can guess, simply did the opposite of the spring applications where they they still applied um, nitrogen in April and in May, but it was very light and they loaded up with one pound in September and November. Okay, so they moved it a little bit later. The application dates. Data collection included visual quality, clipping yields, thatch depth, shoot density, and root weight. Visual quality was on one to nine with six. It was minimal acceptable. I didn't really highlight hardly any. Let me see. I don't think I highlighted hardly any text. Yeah, just a little bit of text here at the end because I'm just going to show everything in these data tables. I think they basically tell the story. Okay. Okay, so I'm looking at table two. Well, before we start, just so we're on, we're on the same page. We, we're in Iowa in 1984, 1985-86. They started doing data, collecting data in 86, 87, and 88. So they ran it for three years, essentially. We're looking at quality and clipping yields. They're looking at... Um, Four nitrogen sources where they're just using straight urea, urea form, methylene urea, and methylol urea, all applied as foliar application or liquid applications. So they have a suspension, which is the blue powder blue, and then they have a soluble methylene urea and methylol urea, or urea or urea form. Which one was the powder blue? Which one they denote as powder blue? <clears throat> So the urea form, okay, so the urea form is the powder blue. And then the methylene urea and the methylol urea are the suspension products, okay? And they want to know, should we is, is it more advantageous to apply these products in the spring heavily or in the fall heavily or space them out through the summer evenly? Is there any difference in the, the form of nitrogen that was applied in terms of turf quality or clipping yields? There's density data, there's thatch data. You know, what, what should we be recommending? Or is there any value? Keep in mind, every time we change from urea to urea with something, the cost goes up. So we have urea, and then we have urea form. Well, urea form is going to be more expensive. There's no way to avoid that. Methylene urea, methylol urea. Okay, so we're going from a standard urea, and we're adding something to it with the intent of gaining some additional return on our investment. Okay. So in cases where there may be an advantage, let's say, let's say in this case, we don't really, I'll just, I'll just cut to the chase. You're not going to see much of an advantage at all from these other products, but let's say we did. You have to ask yourself, do I, do I want to pay? How much money would I pay extra for this? So let's say you saw an advantage, an increase in quality of, five percent or whatever i don't know well the the, the product costs 50 percent more do you want to pay 50 percent for a five percent increase that's up to you maybe that five percent increase keeps you from losing a customer keeps you from keeps the pro from coming down and knocking on your door and asking you what's going on why does the fairway look horrible maybe that five percent is valuable to you it's up to you to determine that but you ha that's the way i want you to think of it i'm only gaining this much um, benefit and again, in this case, you're not receiving any benefits. <laughs> I'm going to show you. But even if you were, how much am I getting out of my investment? Okay. So let's look at the results. The mean visual quality ratings and clipping yield of three Kentucky bluegrass cultivars during three-year studies in response to nitrogen sources and programs. So right here, we're going to talk about the visual quality in this column. And then we have clipping yields in the next columns over. And we're looking at 1986, 1987, and 1988. And we have the... the Turfgrass cultivars over here. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail in turfgrass cultivars. You're welcome to pull this up and do it yourself or you know, pause the video and read through here. Um, I'm more interested in the nitrogen fertilizer forms, which are the, the four forms here, and then the application timings or the dates, which are right below that. And then you have the ANOVA table below that. And I want to point out a couple things on the ANOVA table when we get to roots. So for those people that are for some reason fascinated with roots, you're going to see some root data in this study. Okay. So 1986, 1987, and 1988, I've highlighted the urea, which is the standard form of nitrogen that we would 
you know, start with, and we're adding more cost and we're adding something else when we go to urea form and so forth. And then we have the LSD, which is 0.5. And what you'll see here is that in 1986, the average quality from urea was 7.5 and urea form was 6.5. So we're adding a component to urea. In this case, it's urea form powder blue, which is the suspension product. We've sprayed it out at the same rate as the urea, and we're actually resulting in a reduction of an entire quality point by using the powder blue product in 1986. You'll see the same thing here in 1987, and then in 1988, you don't see the same magnitude, but you, it's, it's still a 0.5 difference. I doubt you'd see that um, agronomically. You probably wouldn't be able to see a difference between 5.5 and 6, but there was still a, a reduction between urea and adding in Instead of urea, add in urea form, and you actually see a reduction in quality in 1986, 87, and 88. In 1986, when you use the solutions, they both were 7 on the quality scale as opposed to urea, which was 7.5. In 1987, it was 7 from methylol and 6.5 from methylene, whereas the urea was 7. And in 1988, you see a 5.5 from methylol and a 6 from methylene urea as opposed to a 6 with urea. So, in other words, there was never a time where any of these additional expensive uh, sprayable urea forms resulted in a turf quality greater than urea. And how many times have we shown that on the channel, guys? I mean, go back and look. It's got to be eight, nine, ten papers at this point. I don't even know. Someone go back and look. N numerous, numerous times we've, we've shown data on comparing nitrogen sources to urea. and only in a couple of instances where you you would see a difference greater than urea okay we're in, in like i said even when you do you have to ask yourself what how much does that cost me and in majority times in this particular case we have urea here and it's it's always as good and in this particular study it's always better except when methylol was equal to urea in 1987 and methylene was equal to urea in 1988 okay so, I mean, you know, we, we, I know we like to try to, it, it's, it's, it's sexy to come up with like, oh, we have a new product. We have a new nitrogen product and it's called, you know, protein hydrolysate. And we have to, it's going to split the atom in a different way. And we're going to change the entire system because we have a new nitrogen source. It just, it, <laughs> we just don't see that happen that frequently. Okay. We just don't. Sorry. It's just the way it is. It's really hard to beat quality in response to urea. It's really hard to beat that. And when you add in cost, you even it's even more difficult to beat urea on cost. I'm going to show some papers before everybody jumps on and starts throwing out urea all over creation. I'm going to show some papers where clearly there's an advantage in terms of the environmental consequences and risks to using slow release materials. You know, if you're going to go out, if you don't know what you're doing, like I said a couple episodes ago, if you don't know what you're doing. I wouldn't hand somebody, you know, a truckload of urea and just send them out on a, on a, you know, on a route trying to get 15 yards done in a day or trying to get, you know, the, all the fairways done, or are you trying to get, you know, 18 soccer, soccer fields applied in a day if they don't know what they're doing. Okay. You, you need to know what you're doing because that urea is highly soluble. It's highly leachable. It, you, you can... It can move off site if you, if you don't know what you're doing, okay? If you know what you're doing and you're playing at the right time and you're controlling the water, which is critical. When we get into leaching and the environmental consequences and so forth, when I eventually get there, you're going to find out that the, the major influencing factor of off-site movement is the control of water. It's, it's not necessarily the nitrogen source per se. I mean, nitrogen sources do have an effect, but when you can control the water, the nitrogen source becomes less important. And when you're not controlling the water, the nitrogen source becomes really important. I can go outside right now. They, they, fertilized, my, they fertilized my neighbor's lawn with some slow-risk material, and it just rained. In fact, I'll do that when I, when I get off the channel. I'll go out and take, take some photos. It rains buckets for about two or three hours here this morning. And I bet money if I go outside, I'm going to see those fertilizer prills, a little trail right on the sidewalk, right into the street drain. And that was from a slow-release source. Okay, so... It's not just, oh, soluble nitrogen sources are the problem if it rains a lot or if it rains, if you're not controlling the water. It can be soluble or slow. 
depending on a lot of factors. Okay, guys. I'll get off my soapbox. Okay, nitrogen source. So a heavy spring. We'll notice in the heavy spring, the 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 quality was greatest in the heavy with the heavy spring applications compared to the balance throughout the summer and the late fall. It's oftentimes there were no differences. Let's be clear. Oftentimes there were no differences in the quality between these these applications between spring and fall in balance. But when there were on the well, it says 0.5, so I guess there was. Yeah, um, it was a seven. On the quality scale in 1986, 87 from the heavy spring, and they were still about seven, six and a half. I doubt biologically you'd be able to go out there and see a difference between six and a half and seven. So I would say, roughly speaking, they were rough. The qualities were generally the same, economically speaking, between heavy spring balanced nitrogen applications throughout the year and then late fall applications, give or take. They're they're roughly the same, but there was never a time when the balanced or late fall was exceeded the heavy spring application clipping yields. You'll notice some, um, a few differences here and there on clipping. yield. Or do you even see any differences? You don't, you see hardly any differences on clipping yields. I guess you do a little bit here in 1988, urea resulted in more clipping yields than urea form, but generally the clipping yields were about the same between urea, urea form, methylene urea and methyl urea. There wasn't much difference between these. And generally, let's see. Yeah, there wasn't at least the different difference was a five. So the, the what time of year you applied it did, didn't change the clipping yields, the growth rate of the turf. Roughly, it was well, it was all twenty four in nineteen eighty six grams per square meter, and twenty three to twenty two. So they, they were all the same. The clipping, the clippings, and the growth rates didn't really change that much based upon when you applied it, and they didn't change that much based upon the form of nitrogen. What what was consistent was that urea was at the top. And visual quality, and it was consistent with the other nitrogen sources in terms of clipping response, clipping growth. When you go to the effects of in-source on nitrogen programs on shoot density and thatch accumulation, you'll see in 1987 the density from the uh, the Kentucky bluegrass resulting from urea nitrogen sources was the same among nitrogen sources. There was no differences in density. There was no difference. There were no differences in thatch accumulation, whether you used urea or urea form. The thatch accumulation was 14 millimeters in urea, and it was 15 or 14 millimeters from urea form or your methylene urea or methyl urea. Depend didn't matter. And the same thing happened in, in October of 1988. The following year, there were no differences in the thatch accumulation based upon what source of nitrogen you used. There was also no differences in thatch accumulation based upon the time of year you applied it. So whether you applied it in the spring heavy or a balance throughout the summer, in the fall or the late fall, the thatch accumulation was the same. Okay, let's go down to the roots. Effective in-source uh, on programs on root organic matter. So they measured roots by ashing them. They collected them and they, they weighed them beforehand and they ashed them and they did the differences and so forth. A very common way. We're going to look at roots in two different years. Let me think here. And oh, we're going to look at it in the fall and we're going to look at it in the spring. Okay. And I'm going to make a couple points here on the roots. I've highlighted the urea. We're looking at a table that's formatted the same way. They have the, the, the cultivars over here on the left. We have the nitrogen sources and then we have the at time of year. Let's start with the time of year because there are a few differences there. Generally speaking, the time of year did have a difference some, sometimes. And it was in the, only in the top 10 centimeters, the top zero to five and the five to 10 centimeters. When there was a difference, it usually came from the late fall application of nitrogen, where the late fall application, I'm like, the quantities don't matter, but the late fall resulted in a, a larger magnitude of roots in terms of root uh, uh, organic matter production compared to the balanced and the heavy spring application of nitrogen. There was more, there were more uh, roots and the five to 10 centimeter depth in the spring of 1986 when you used a balanced nitrogen application. But that's the only time there was a difference that existed uh, greater than the late fall application. So you'll see it again in 1987 where zero to five and five to 10 centimeter depths, there were greater root masses grown uh, from during the late fall application as a result of the late fall application of nitrogen than compared to like say the heavy spring. And that's pretty consistent in the literature. These fall applications of nitrogen generally re result in larger quantities of roots or larger masses of roots um, than applying nitrogen evenly spaced out or applying nitrogen heavier in the spring. So that's, you know, I don't have any issue with that. That's pretty consistent. When it comes to the nitrogen sources and on roots, the effect of nitrogen sources on roots, you'll see absolutely no differences all the way across 
whatever depth, zero to five, five to 10, 10 to 15, 15 to 20 centimeters, they broke it out. And there was no differences in root masses based upon the form of nitrogen in 1986 or 1987 in the spring. Okay, so there's don't expect to see any greater root mass or less root mass if you change the, the form of soluble nitrogen among these four forms they use. Let's look at the fall application or the fall effect on, on roots. That was in the spring. When we look at the fall, we're going to see the nitrogen applications that were applied late sometimes did result in an increase in roots. You'll see here in the 15 to 20 centimeters and the zero to five centimeters in the fall of 86 and the fall of 87. In the fall of 88, you also see an increase in the root mass when the nitrogen was applied in late fall, as opposed to the heavy spring of the balanced. Okay. There's not that many differences in roots, you know, but when it did occur, it was, it occurred in the late fall. When the nitrogen sources, there was only one time where a nitrogen source resulted in an increase in roots, and that was from methylol urea, the solution nitrogen source, resulted in greater root mass than the 0 to 5 centimeters in the fall of 1988. But the majority of the time, nothing happened on roots. And that's what I want to point out, is that oftentimes you'll see on YouTube or Twitter or whatever, though, someone holding up these massive, you know, core of soil or turf, and you'll say, oh, look at all these roots. These roots are great. Majority of the time, we don't see that. When we, act, when we actually go out and measurement, that's all smoke and mirrors mostly. I can, I can go outside right here and pull up a core of, of turf and say, oh, look at all these roots. And I haven't applied hardly any nitrogen on my lawn. Okay. I do apply nitrogen on my lawn, but very rarely, not that much. So whenever someone pulls up a core and says, look at these roots, and this is a result of me applying, you know, whatever product, that don't, don't get convinced by that. That's the worst type of information you can get to be convinced by because then the great majority of cases we don't see any differences in root and you can see that down here in the in the ANOVA table you'll see this this rep factor is is highly significant that's not real important for practical purposes and then you see the cultivar the differences between cultivars you'll see differences in roots like so for Bermuda grass versus you know say Tifway versus uh you know uh Tiff Eagle you'll see huge differences even though it's the same species You'll see differences in Kentucky bluegrass cultivars or tall fescue cultivars. That that can have an effect. But when you actually have something like nitrogen sources or um, phosphorus applications or you know dates, it's rare you see a differences in, in root lengths or densities. It's rare. Sometimes you see it, but it's rare. And I wanted to point that out here because he has all these NSs down here. Once you get to the F, which is fertilizer, or the P, which is programs, that's what you want to look at. So the F is this column here and you see ns is all the way across except for one little instance and the p and the f a lot of ns is down there which means non-significant in the fall you don't see much significant differences in roots as in as influenced by nitrogen sources or the dates they were applied and you'll see the same thing in the previous in the spring in the previous anova table the fertilizer here is no differences at all the fertilizer in, in the the uh, the program you'll see a few see a few but most of them are non-significant so don't don't be fooled by someone saying, "Oh, look look at all these roots I grew," you know, and, and showing a photo and have it on, on on flyers and stuff. That is not good information. That's not good evidence at all. That's not evidence at all. It's just information. And we're to prioritize that as our goal. We prioritize that at the very very bottom of the triangle. That may what what they're showing you might be true. It might not be true, but that shouldn't be convincing information because someone's showing you roots on a on a cup cutter plug that they pulled out of the green and said oh this is working well how do you know this is epistemology it's ridiculous okay let's get to the last part we only have a few few little things here i just want to point out in the conclusions and we'll be done the heavy spring nitrogen program consistently showed greater visual quality ratings than the late fall and balance programs that's what i showed basically the same thing however the heavy spring nitrogen program also produced more clippings yield than the late fall and balance programs in 87 and 88 the greater quality ratings and clipping yields are in part due to the application of nitrogen on Kentucky bluegrass at a time of year that would stimulate shoot growth rather than root growth. And I would agree with that. There is some root growth in the spring um, that does occur in the spring as well, but not, I don't think it's uh, near as much the same that you would notice in the fall. Spring fertilization may stimulate shoot growth at the expense of root growth. And he has um, Tony's paper and Warner's paper here in 85 and 88. Spring fertilization can cause plants to channel plant carbohydrates from the roots to the shoots, thereby reducing root elongation and exposing the plant to potential injury from high temperature stress. So basically what he's saying is, yes, we saw this in the spring, but you still want to be careful because you're going into the summer 
and it actually can result in deleterious effects, although they didn't see that, they didn't measure that. You got to be careful. In this study, Majestic Kentucky Bluegrass, a high-maintenance cultivar, performed better than medium and low-maintenance cultivars. This study was under a high-maintenance treatment program, but experienced a season of stressful non-irrigated conditions in, drought, in the drought of 1988. So what he's, he's, I didn't go into cultivars that much. I'm not that particularly interested. I know some scientists are more interested in that than, than the other parts, and that's, that's fine. But if you want to see the differences in cultivars, you feel free to, to see that. They're saying that the, the high-maintenance was better um, in this particular study, it was managed under higher maintenance than um, what would be typical. Nowadays, we're actually doing the opposite. We're doing a lot of work nowadays on the on the, the lowest amount of input. So programs like A-List, where it's um, low-input sustainable turf grasses, where they do a lot of trial work, and they're trying to find out what, in this location, what which turf grass would be most suitable when you're under conditions of low input, low water input, or no water input sometimes, little to no pesticides, you know, and so forth. And, and then they, they do the study here in Kentucky. Well, not anymore, but they used to do it here in Kentucky and we do it all over, the, all over the nation. And in those cases, we're looking at, okay, what would be an acceptable turf grass when we want to provide very little, if any, input at all? And then so they're basically starting to work through that and figure out in this particular location, these cultivars are what you want to try to direct your energies towards and stay away from the other cultivars. And there's a lot of there's a lot of evidence to support that approach. This study, okay, I already did that. Oh wait, I'll skip through that. The last paragraph: Spring nitrogen applications can reduce root growth by promoting shoot growth. And he has Koski and Streets '85 paper. Common types have been found to produce less roots and more shoot growth after spring nitrogen applications. We found this to be true in 1987 when the heavy spring application was applied to Park Kentucky bluegrass plots. In that year, shoot growth clippings increased and the root mass decreased compared to Majestic. Late fall applications can stimulate spring greenup, reduce the need for early spring nitrogen applications, and promote extensive root growth. Now, we have gone over that many times, and clearly that's the case. I mean, you can have this, the nitrogen applications in the late fall and winter have a beneficial impact on the, in the spring. However, after this paper was published... There have been many other papers show that those late fall applications and winter applic early winter applications also in increase the environmental risk. Okay. So if you just want to look straight across at the turf, then there's a benefit. But when we look at the entire system, i.e. the turf, the environment, your bottom dollar, your money, we have to consider all that. And when we consider all that, these very late fall and early winter applications of nitrogen are generally move, we're moving away from those nowadays. Most most uh, turf scientists will agree that, that those late fall, early winter applications probably should be minimized or avoided. And we can adjust for that because of the increased risk and environmental contamination. And we can adjust for that by doing it earlier in the spring and then come out, I'm sorry, earlier in the fall, and you'll have that color that you're looking for, and then come out early in the spring when, you know, right before the turf starts to really start going and you'll, you'll avoid that environmental risk, say in December and January and February by having all that nitrogen out in the soil, like having my fertilizer prills from my neighbor's lawn. They, they didn't do it. It was a company sitting on their lawn and getting washed off the lawn into the, into the, into the drain, which I'm going to go out and take a photo of as soon as I get off the channel today. It's sitting there. Imagine if it had been sitting there all January when it was raining, raining, raining every day. The slow, release, the slow release materials have a chance, albeit very small, it has a chance of being moved off the grass onto the concrete and being washed down the drain. And he says, well, that, what's the chance of that happening? I see it all the time. Okay, And then there's plenty of evidence to support that. Okay, well, We can go over that if you want to, but there's just not a lot of... Um, well, there, there is a benefit to those applications, but the risk the, and the cost to you, all these things you have to look at. And I just don't think that the at least for me when i'm doing something on my lawn i'm not applying any nitrogen in november and december and january and in february i'm not doing that and if i do it's going to be in the fall and if i do in the fall it's going to be soluble for the very reason i just showed one you generally have a better response as we've gone over for many many weeks in the fall last last fall but two because it's not slow release, it moves into the soil. So you don't have to worry about these heavy rains washing it off the surface, which is probably what happened right outside my door. I'm going to go take a photo and see if it's there right now. Okay. This study also indicated that late fall applications of urea stimulated root growth and hastened spring greenup, which I agree, that's in the literature too. 
Warner in 1988, however, stated that late fall applications of urea may not eliminate the need for spring nitrogen applications, but can allow for a reduction in the amount that needs to be applied. This proved to be true in both high and low maintenance cultivars in this study. So he's saying you can still do that. You can do the fall, whatever, but you might still have to go out anyway in the spring. And my argument is if you're going to do that and go out anyway in the spring, just apply it a little bit in the fall, earlier in the fall, and then don't apply that fall application, the late fall and winter application. Don't apply that if you're going to have to go out in the spring anyway. Avoid the, the risk and then go out in the spring and apply that in the spring and you're fine. That would be my, my argument there on that, you know, on that topic. That's all I had for that paper. Okay, let's let me see if there's a uh, anything in the chat you guys want me to respond to before I go. The the music today is from my favorite blues rock guitarist, who's unfortunately no longer with us. I never saw him live. I was a little bit too young. He passed away. Actually, I probably could have saw him when I was in high school, but I didn't do it. Um, Backyard Canuck. Welcome. And you guys have been in this business for a long time, 35 years. A couple of you guys have been doing this for 35 years. Hi, Gray. Thanks for the, thanks. Thank you, Gray. I'm gonna let you guys go. I'll be back tomorrow morning at 10. I'm not sure exactly what the paper's gonna be. I'm trying to uh, find a paper that I said I would go over and now I, seem, I can't seem to find it. But anyway, that's all I got for today, guys. I'll be on tomorrow morning and then tomorrow night. In the meantime, uh, be kind, be safe, and I'll see you tomorrow.